Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. Appreciate your spirit and your prayer this morning. And uh, we'll try to get a word as to how things are going, make sure everybody uh, is okay. You know, while we're praying, I got a text message last night from Moon Grafon. Uh, You know, Mike Johnson is our new Speaker of the House. And, uh, you know, this is a chaotic world. I don't know of a more critical time in a more challenging environment for godly men to be in positions of responsibility and leadership. And so when Republicans selected Mike, or the whole Congress selected Mike uh, Johnson as the Speaker of the House, it was kind of a surprise to a lot of people. He's from Louisiana, and I'm always reluctant to engage in any sort of political thing like that. For one thing, this kingdom is not, his kingdom is not of this earth. Uh, for another thing, I think we have politic fatigue, and so we don't want to talk too much about it. But man, the world's on fire right now, and uh, we need the right people. And so I'm, I'm reluctant also because I'm a bit skeptical of politicians, Um, And, you know, Moon's pretty hard on politicians. And so he said, Mike is the real deal. And I've heard that from more than one person who knows him, that he has an authentic faith and that he's going to live out his faith and he's going to bring his faith to bear in the decisions that he makes for this nation. And so to me, I can't think of anything more important than to pray for him and to pray for all of our leaders. And you know, Moon said, I need you to pray for Mike because he's under attack already from the people that hate Jesus. Um, and I get that. But I thought, you know, not only do I need to pray, we need to, you know, the Bible calls us to pray for those in authority over us. And so can we take a minute and pray and just lift him up? Father, I just I lift up Mike to you. I don't I don't know him, um, but those that do know him respect him deeply and I can't think of a harder job to have right now in this world that seems to be at the brink and Israel under attack from terrorists with a stated objective of wiping the Jewish people from the face of the earth. Um, In our own nation, we have anarchy and chaos everywhere and our leadership seems to be paralyzed as to know what to do. And I, I pray for our new speaker. I pray for all of our congressmen and all of our senators and all of the executive branch. And I pray for Mike in particular that like Joseph in Egypt, that you would just raise him up, make him wise, um, help him not to fail, keep him pure, show him the way forward, use him as an example. And Father, that you would protect his family and heal our land and heal our world. In Jesus' name, amen. Wilbur Reese, writing with biting sarcasm, said, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love my enemy or pick beats with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. 
I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. <laughs> you know, the sad truth is, that's the level of commitment that so many people make when they come to Jesus. I just want about $3 worth, you know. And too many people settle for a $3 bag of Jesus. And then they look at their lives and they realize, my life doesn't look any different from the lives of those who make no claims on Christ at all. Why is that? Well, because $3 worth of Jesus isn't going to change your life. It's not transformational. If you want your life to change, it takes a complete surrender. In fact, when Jesus wanted to describe it, he described it as dying. And we die so that we can live. He said, if any man wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross. And by the way, they all knew what taking up your cross meant. You die and let him follow me. If you really want your life to be different, if you really want the transformation, then you have to experience the power of death and resurrection. Not just the resurrection that we'll have, but the resurrection we experience in the conversion process of coming to faith in Christ. When I fully surrender myself to the lordship of the sovereign God of the universe, he takes that surrender and he brings me back to life as a new creation. That's the essence of John chapter 11, where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. So let's go there, uh, turn your devices on, let's pick our Bibles up. Let's walk through this beautiful text of what it means to be servant and subservient to the resurrection and the life. It starts in verse 1. Now there was a certain man was sick. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany. Bethany uh, the, is the village of Mary and her sister Martha. So there's a trio involved here, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And Jesus had a deep and abiding love for these three. And he's extremely close to them. Lazarus is about to die. Uh, John explains who Mary is, verse 2. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with, with ointment, wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. And that's an interesting thing for him to do because he hasn't told us about Mary yet and, and the, the fact that Mary anointed Jesus. He's going to do that in the next chapter, in chapter 12. So it's like, well, John, why are you mentioning that, referencing her now as if we know who she is and as we know that story? And the only thing I can come up with is that must have been a very common story within the church. They must have had, everybody must have known it. So we get the scenario, Lazarus, Mary, Martha. So the sisters sent word to him. Jesus isn't in Bethany. Bethany's about two miles from uh, Jerusalem. And if you remember, and you're going to see in our study of John, that Jesus sort of used the home of, of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus as a staging place as he came in and out of the temple on his last week of earthly ministry. It was from Bethany that he rode the donkey into Jerusalem in the triumph and entry and all of that stuff. And so Bethany becomes important in that regard. But Jesus isn't there. At the time of this, he's up on the Jordan River where John the Baptist would baptize people about a two days trip away. So they sent word to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. And again, the intimacy of the relationship. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now he had two purposes in this. 
First, he wanted to demonstrate that he had power over life and death. And he does that through the resurrection of Lazarus. But I think also he wanted to set up the situation and to use it to prepare Jerusalem for the triumphant entry. Because when Jesus was coming from Bethany into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the whole place was electric. And the thing that electrified them was the the knowledge of what Jesus had done in bringing Lazarus back from the dead. So all of that's tied together. But then watch what happens because this is so weird. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two days longer. Wait, what? Let's read that again. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard he was sick, he went right to them. Is that what it says? No, it says he waited two extra days. And I scratched my head on that. He waited two days longer in the place where he was. Why did he do that? That doesn't make sense. And here's what we need to understand. By the time Jesus heard about Lazarus' sickness, Lazarus was already dead. Now, you're going to see this. He waited two days longer where he was. He was about a two-day's journey from Bethany and, and we're going to see later in this story that Lazarus had been dead for four days. So by the time Jesus hears about Lazarus, it's too late. He's already dead. You're like, well, then why didn't he go anyway? I mean, Mary and Martha are there and they needed comfort and consoling. And why didn't he just be there with them for them, caring about them, you know? And the truth is he had bigger plans than that. And sometimes it's hard for us to see that because we've kind of got this story mapped out about the way we think things ought to go. And included in that is the way we think God ought to behave. When in reality, his ways are not our ways. His ways are higher than our ways. And he sometimes has plans that we can't see. His plan wasn't just to console those two sisters. It was to bring their brother back from the dead. He's going to let him be dead for four days to demonstrate that he really was dead. He had a bigger plan. And we need to stop thinking that when God doesn't work on our timetable, that he quit loving us. And we, I get that a lot. Finally, in verse 7, Jesus said, Pack up, boys, we're headed for Bethany. And the disciples are like, uh, Master, uh, I think you've forgotten something. Bethany's in Judea. Last time we were there, they wanted to kill us. In fact, we barely got out with our lives. So why would we do that? Why would we go back? You know, and finally when the decision is made, they're going back. Uh, you know, Thomas goes, well, I guess we're going to Judea to die. Let's go, boys. You know, they call him Doubting Thomas, but he was willing to go and die. And verse 11, got to go. Lazarus, our friend, has fallen asleep. And the disciples are like, well, if he's fallen asleep, he's going to wake up. What's the big hurry? And so verse uh, 14, Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And so he begins the journey toward Bethany. And we don't have time to unpack every single verse. Uh, so I'm trying to kind of hit the highlights so that you can get the feel of the story. So as Jesus is moving, it's a two-day trip. Somebody runs ahead. They let him know, hey, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. You know, word always sort of went ahead of him. Jesus is coming. 
And when Mary and Martha hear this, watch what happens because it really demonstrates the disappointment that sort of spills out of their heart. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. Mary's hurt was so deep that she couldn't see Jesus then. Now, Martha and Mary are different. Luke 10 tells the story about there's a time Jesus is hanging out at their house and Mary's just worshiping Jesus and at the feet of Jesus and listening to Jesus and loving on Jesus. And Martha's in the kitchen trying to make food for everybody. And she's kind of mad because nobody's helping her. So she's slamming cabinets and banging pots around and nobody's helping me. And finally, Jesus is like, Martha, you know, take a chill pill. Mary's doing the better thing. She's worshiping. I know we got to do this other stuff, but you're all tangled up in it. And so you get from that a snapshot of these two women. Martha is a take action, sort of do what has to be done kind of person. And Mary is more intuitive. She's more mystic. She's more uh, artistic. You know, she she just wants to be with Jesus. She just wants to worship Jesus. So you got these two different, and, and those two different personalities are seen in the way they react. Martha goes to Jesus but you got to realize in coming to Jesus, she's not, only, she's not only going to Jesus, but she's kind of going to give him a piece of her mind. Verse 20, when Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, Mary stayed at the house. Verse 21, Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. In other words, why weren't you here? In other words... You let my brother die. And I'm really wrestling with how that's making me feel about you right now. Do you get it? Why doesn't Jesus come when we want him to come? You ever ask yourself that? Why doesn't he come now? I remember praying that prayer. Jesus, why don't you come now? I've got a major exam tomorrow and I haven't studied. And the Holy Spirit just says back, why didn't you study, die? We want him to come and go on our timetable, right? But he doesn't do that. And, and when he doesn't do that, we feel disappointed with it. Let, let me just say this. Every single one of us at some point in our life are going to be deeply disappointed by Jesus. And some will rage like Martha and some will shut down like Mary. But here's something you got to remember. God doesn't follow your script. And you might have written this story out of what you expect, and it's like, God, bless my life. And God's like, I am going to bless your life, but your life is not going to go the way you expected it to go. And, and, you know, what's interesting is Martha left room for that. Look at her amazing faith. Verse 22, even now I know whatever you ask of God, God will give you. That's amazing. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And so Martha's trying to process that. You know, she's trying to wrap her head around. He just said, your brother's going to rise again. And she's like, are we talking about the resurrection? Because if we're talking about the resurrection, I kind of get that. So she says to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And then Jesus delivers this beautiful point. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And this is the whole point of the whole thing. I want to come back to it in a minute, but let's finish the story, okay? Jesus says, and everyone who lives and believes in me 
will never die. Now, obviously, we're going to die. He's talking about we'll never die spiritually. And then he asked that really hard question. Martha, do you believe this? And watch what she says. She said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed. Wait a minute. Wait a second. Watch the verb tenses when you study the Bible. Watch the verb tenses. What's the verb tense here? Past tense. I have believed. See what she's saying? I have believed. She's not saying, he didn't ask what you used to believe. He's saying, do you believe? Are you believing right now? We tend to do that with God. When, especially when our hearts are filled with disappointment, we become historical. Sometimes we get hysterical and then we get historical. Like when Elijah had the confrontation with the prophets of Baal and wound up in a cave isolated and alone and God came to Elijah and said, what are you doing here? And, and Elijah goes past tense. I have been very zealous for the Lord. And I can't tell you how many people I run into when you'll talk to them about the things of faith. It's like, I used to. I used to be in church every time the doors were open. I used to be a member. I don't know how many. You know, if we were to gather up all the used to be members of North Monroe, Man, we can make a city out of it. Everybody used to be a member of North Monroe. I think, you know, I'll talk to, yeah, I used to be a member. I used to go up there. I used to attend up there. And that's what Martha's doing. She's getting historical with him. I have believed that you're the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. But did she really answer his question? You see, it seems to me like she's believing in general where Jesus is asking her to believe in specifics. It felt like Jesus said, do you believe I will? But she seemed to answer, yes, I believe you can. And there's a difference there. You know, sometimes faith is believing God can, but more oftentimes real faith is believing God will. Am I really trusting you to believe that you will do this? And so Jesus calls for Mary, and finally she comes to him. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She says almost the exact same thing that Martha had said, only I think she says it totally differently. I think Martha put her hands on her hips, squared up on him and said, if you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And I think Mary fell at his feet and almost in a whisper said, out of complete discouragement and disappointment with God, Jesus, if you'd have been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. And when Jesus hears her broken heart, look what he does. It's so interesting to me because it, he, he feels the pain of her disappointment. Verse 35, shortest verse in the whole Bible, Jesus wept. Why did he weep? I've heard people say, well, he wept at her disbelief. Um, and yeah, there was a time where Jesus wept, you know, over Jerusalem and their disbelief. I get that. But I don't think that's this time. I don't, I don't think it was her disbelief. It was her broken heart. And I, I think what it says to me is, I think it means that when God sees us hurt, it hurts him too. Especially when he's allowed the hurt. And I get that as a dad, it hurts me more to see my kids hurt than for me to hurt. And I, I think there's some, there's some beauty in that, some comfort in that, that in understanding who God is, He's not this distant, unemotional, unattached deity 
but he's personal and close and, and caring. And, and when you hurt, he hurts. So in verse 39, they go to the tomb. Jesus instructed Martha to remove the stone. Apparently there was a stone in front of the tomb the same way that there was in front of Jesus' tomb. Jesus said, remove the stone. This is verse 39. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there'll be a stench for he's been dead four days. And I'm with Martha on this. But you know what that really demonstrates? It demonstrates to me that she really didn't believe because had she believed, she wouldn't have been so much concerned with the death part as she would have been looking forward to the life part. But that wasn't the case. And, and, and by, by stating that, hey, it's, this thing's going to smell bad. He's been gone for four days. She's really revealing her heart. Verse 43, when, he, when he had, Jesus prayed, and then he said, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And I've heard this old evangelist say, it's a good thing he said Lazarus because he would have emptied the tomb. You know, everybody that had ever died in the history of the world would have come forth. And the man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings. And his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. What a beautiful picture of the resurrected life. Unbind him and let him go. You know, last time I said, I don't, I don't think this was the best miracle Jesus ever did. I always thought healing the blind guy is the best miracle. Now I know the lame thing too and the issue of blood, there have been all of them were great for the person that it happened to. But, you know, if I was blind my whole life, I just can't think of anything, anything more profoundly life-changing and powerful than being able to see. This is the biggest miracle he ever did, but I don't know that it was the best because I'm thinking about this from Lazarus' perspective. If I'm Lazarus and I'm in heaven and you call me back to earth, that's not the best thing. I'm like, what are you calling me for? I was in heaven. And think about it too, this is not necessarily a resurrection so much as it's a resuscitation. Lazarus is going to have to die again. So now he's got to go through the whole process of dying again. And I don't know about you, but that whole thing about dying, I, I'd prefer to only have to do that once. Now he's got to do it twice. And yet this is the greatest miracle he ever did, which really demonstrates who Jesus is. I said a minute ago, the key is verse 25. So let's go back to that and draw a couple of things out of it. Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. He always loved to, I love this about the artistic nature of Jesus. He liked to mess around with words and tenses. And, you know, everybody thinks of God as as an as a engineer or a mechanic, you know. He created the universe and it's mechanical. But the first two words of the whole Bible are in the beginning or God created. That's more than two words, but God created. That's the work of an artist. And Jesus demonstrates that artistry by monkeying with the way different, like when he's talking to the Pharisees and they're like, you know, he's identifying with Abraham. They're like, Abraham's, you're, you're not even 50 years old. Are you saying you knew Abraham? And Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am. And, and of course, the verb tense of that should have been, I was, or I existed before Abraham, however you want to do it. But it's awkward the way he does it. But in doing it that way, he's identifying with that, that name that God had given Moses, I am, the linking verb, I am, I will be, I am, I will always be. The power of that. 
And in this case, it kind of does the same thing. You've heard this expression, verbing. Have you all ever heard of verbing? It's to take a noun, turn it into a verb. Uh, an example might be on Facebook, I friend you on Facebook. Well, friend's not a verb. Friend is a noun, but I'm using it like a verb. I'm going to friend you. Or uh, more obvious, Google. Hey, you don't know something? What do you do? You Google it. Well, Google's a proper name for a corporation. It's not a verb. But when we use a noun for a verb, that's called verbing. Well, Jesus did kind of the opposite of that. Uh, best I could describe is he's nouning. <laughs> because resurrection, yeah, it can be a noun, the resurrection, but more often, it's an action verb. You are resurrected. He was resurrected. And Jesus is saying, I am the resurrection. And, and you know, really, I might be resurrected, but I can't be a resurrection. And yet, he is. And I think the whole point of this is he's, he's about to perform a resurrection. He was about to be resurrected. And through him, we are resurrected. And yet, here's what he wants us to hear. Okay, you ready? First of all, he has power over death. I think that's the whole thing here. He's demonstrating I'm Lord over death. And you know what that means to me? He's got power over my death. Which means he's got power over your death, which means I don't have to fear death all the time. You know, that's the great fear everybody has. The greatest fear we all have is, well, they, they actually they say the greatest fear everybody has is public speaking. That's number one. And number two is death. That means that you'd rather die than do what I'm doing right now. <laughs> but really, in the end, we really fear death. My fear of heights isn't so much a fear of heights and a fear of falling as it is a fear of landing. It's the sudden stop. So I fear death. And that fear of death sort of plays on us throughout our life. And yet, look what he said in verse 26. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And because he has power over death, I can know for certain that I have eternal life. I don't, I don't have to live my life worried about that anymore. You know, 1 John 5, 13, these things have we written that you may know for certain that you have eternal life. You don't have to worry about dying anymore. Paul said, in the future there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness. He wasn't worried about dying. And, and because Jesus is the resurrection, I don't have to worry about that either. And there's freedom in that. But you know, if that was all there was, it would be enough. But it's really not all there was because of the way he said it. Again, look at the way he said it. He didn't say, I am the resurrected life. He said, I am the resurrection. It's a predicate nominative construction. I am the resurrection. And con a conjunction, the life. Both of those are in the nominative form, which means the subject form. I am, you can separate them all you want. I am the resurrection. I am the life. The two things are separate and distinct, and one flows from the other. Because he is the resurrection, he's the life, which means it's not just dying he's talking about. It's living. He has the power over life. And I think we're back to John 10.10. 10. You know, we looked at this last time. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it, how? Abundantly. Which means two things to me. And, and we're done. The first is, I don't have to worry about my future. I used to think Christianity would be the preferred way of life, even if there wasn't a resurrection. Like, take the heaven thing completely out. Give me Jesus. Give me this life. 
and it's a better way at going at life. But then one day I realized this life wouldn't be possible without the resurrection because the power of the resurrection is the power of the life that I have. You see, the hope that I have comes from the resurrection. Paul called it the Christ in you, the hope of glory. And hope changes everything. For one thing, it makes me more resilient. Because I hope, I'm more resilient. They did a study, Harvard did a study, 1957 by a guy named Kurt Rickner. And I know it sounds cruel, but they took a bunch of rats and they threw them in some water and then they timed them to see how long it'd take the rats to die. And on average, those rats swimming in that water lived about 15 minutes, 15 minutes. And then they did something else. They took some of the rats who were just, you know, at the point of drowning, maybe 14 and a half minutes, and they lifted those rats out of the water, dried them off, set them aside, let them resuscitate, and then threw them back in the water to see how long they'd last a second time. You know how long those rats swam the second time? Two and a half days. Two and a half days. And they determined that the hope of rescue made them far more resilient. Now, if that'll happen to a false hope of a rat, think about the real hope of eternal life and what that does in my life. You know, I know I've got a Father that loves me. I know I've got a Savior. And I know that that hope is going to keep me alive. And it also keeps me focused. I mean, I know the bigger things that are happening. If, if, if heaven is forever, and, and this is for about 70, 80 years, 60 years, 20 years, 30 years, then everything that happens here is in preparation for what's going to go on up there. And so I can't get all balled up in the minutia and the details and the worries and the fears of this life. And it keeps me focused. I pursue my purpose. So I don't have to worry about my future and then secondly, I don't have to worry about my past. There's an interesting play on words here. He said, I am the resurrection and the life, right? What's resurrection mean? Doesn't it mean to come back to life? So what he's really saying is, I am the back to life life. I'm the back to life life. Isn't that what Christianity is? Christianity is the back to life life. I mean, go back to the discussion with Nicodemus. And Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And to be reborn, I have to die. And so every time somebody gets baptized around here, we say, buried with Christ, risen, resurrected for a new life. So the Christian experience is a resurrection of the dead. It's a resurrection. It's a, a return to life, life, right? Uh, John, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, the God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, our transgressions made us alive together with Christ. He resurrected us by grace you've been saved. So in a real sense, I'm not waiting to be resurrected. The moment I gave my life to Christ, I was resurrected. I've already been resurrected. You know what that means? It means that I don't have to feel the shame and guilt and embarrassment and all the junk that happened in the life that I've already died to. I mean, consider that. Here, let's do something. Think about your most embarrassing moment of your entire life. And for some of you guys, it's going to be your most embarrassing moment so far. 
your most embarrassing moment of your entire life. Think about that. That thing that you're so glad I don't know about. I've got lots of that stuff I'm so glad you don't know about. That worst thing that happened, right? Now, never think about it again because it's gone. You died to that. And one of the most powerful things you'll ever learn in your walk with Jesus is to remember to forget that stuff because God does. He says, their sins I will remember no more. You're like, how can God not remember my sins when he remembers everything? It's not that he can't remember it. It's that he chooses not to recall it because that's the old you. And that's the way it's described throughout the New Testament. If any man is in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17, he is a new creature, a new, the word is new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things are new. And so because he's the resurrection and the life, I don't have to worry about my tomorrow. I don't have to worry about my past. But let me tell you something. You're not going to get that with a $3 bag of Jesus. That only comes through surrender when you die to yourself so that Jesus Christ can resurrect you from that dead life to live for him. And if you've never done that, you need to surrender this morning. I want to call you to surrender because we serve the resurrection and the life. Can we pray together? First of all, for those of you that have never surrendered, you've been trying to carry around a $3 sack of Jesus. You want just enough Jesus to feel good about yourself. It doesn't work that way. Would you surrender? Here's how you do it. God, I give to you my whole life. I die to that old life. And I completely give over to you everything there is about me. I give to everything I understand about you. Forgive me of my sins. Resurrect me through the power of your resurrection spirit. Father, I pray for those that have just prayed to receive you for, for salvation. They've surrendered themselves to you. God, help them to take that next step to let other people know about it, to make it public. I thank you for the power of a changed life. I thank you for the power of working that in them right now in this moment. But there's a second prayer I want to pray this morning, and that's for those of you who've already been remade. You've already been resurrected. But you still fear the future, and you still regret the past. Would you just pray this prayer? Father, help me to trust in you for my future. I lay my fear of death. I lay my fear of the unknown. I lay my fear of failure. I lay all of those fears at the foot of the cross right now because I know that you're not only the resurrection, you're the resurrection and the life. And you have an intention to give me an abundant life. And Father, 
I pray for those that are struggling with the shame and the guilt and the embarrassment of the past. That we would treat that as you treat it. As far as east is from west, so far have you removed these things from us. You throw it in the sea of forgetfulness and remember it no more. And so, Father, that worst thing that we've ever done, we choose never to recall it again. And any time the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and to blame and shame, Father, we're going to continue to forget it, knowing that we've been resurrected in Christ, and that's an old life that we no longer have to be concerned with. And we thank you for that healing that comes in that. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make Him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.